Welcome to the Frankly Who Cares podcast. It's the Frankly Who Cares podcast, the podcast that pines for the days of Janino's free kicks. On today's pod, we talk sporting flops, exciting news as the podcast goes global, and I get even more excited about the return of Formula One. Hello, I'm Alex, joined as always by Tom. How are you doing, Tom? Hello, yes, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, um, I feel, so the the clocks have just gone forward, spring is Mm. is in the air, I think. I mean, we're going to carry on to F1 later on, but it feels like we're really at a point where the sort of sports change over. And uh, it's been good this weekend because uh, it's international break time in football, which means for once we haven't got a Premier League game on every hour. So yeah. it's been quite nice to in, in have a bit of breathing time around other sports and to watch watch some other things that are a bit different. So, and yeah, how are things with you? Yeah, good. Same, really. Nice, uh, nice that it, spring has properly sprung. I agree with you about just having a break from uh, from the football. There's been cricket. There's the Formula One, as you said, which we'll get to later. Um, yeah, yeah, all good, really. Particularly because, uh, as uh, as I teed up earlier. Frankly, Who Cares is available uh, wherever people get their podcasts. So we're on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. What else are we on? We're on Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, anywhere else. That's good news. Yeah, that's only taken us um, four episodes. So that was good. That was tiring. Yeah, exactly. to send it around on WhatsApp. So yeah, good. Yeah. That. So subscribe um, uh, if you want, and do give us a review as well, which will help us if you give us a, obviously a good review. If you're not going to give us a good review, don't give us a review. Obviously. <laughs> uh, you even but, leave us uh, a review, yes. give us five stars. So, yeah. well, exactly. It's really easy. Just press a button. Yeah. So what should we start with today? I feel like we should start, as um, we seem to have over the last few weeks, with my, my, my latest obsession, which is, so that Serena Williams is the most famous sports person <laughs> in the world. Uh, and uh, so if you remember last week, there was a letter that came in, an email that came in, uh, and I also mentioned Jenny and Karen, who I'd spoken to, and they unprompted said that Serena Williams was the most famous sports person in the world. And you said, uh, why don't we just have a quick listen to, to what you said? Karen and Jenny, who I work briefly work with as well uh i just don't believe you <laughs> i think it's a leading question okay so they that's what you said last time uh and uh we've uh, jenny has, has has written in hasn't she tom did you want to uh why don't you go through what jenny said <laughs> yeah well um <laughs> the email is entitled coercion would you like um mm. This email hereby confirms that Karen and I did indeed suggest that Serena Williams as the world's most famous sports person without prompting from Alex. Though obviously the conversation was then derailed by his extensive gloating, of course. Um, so that that's one point. I mean, I think unprompted, the word unprompted is defined slightly differently in your language of the mind by the sounds of it. I mean, Go on. if you're having a conversation with two people about who the most famous unless they exactly at the same time say Serena Williams or write it down independently and then reveal it, clearly one is influencing the other. And I suspect that's the case is that someone suggested Serena Williams. The other person went, oh, that's a good one. I can't think of anyone better than that. Fine. So then they they (laughs) carry on to say Serena is clearly the right answer because she's a bona fide celebrity beyond her sport. 
in the vein of Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, but much more relevant than either of them right now. Okay. Okay. So the first part of that, bona fide celebrity beyond her sport doesn't make her the most famous person because you've then immediately said in the vein of two other incredibly famous sports people. So mm -hmm. that now much more relevant than neither of them right now is uh, that is potentially true. I still think um, Tiger Woods is incredibly famous and incredibly, maybe not as relevant, but I, he's getting towards the end of his career, massive car accident, notwithstanding, but, so is Serena Williams. Um, so I still don't think that uh, that is a kind of, you know, stonewall proof. I also think that Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods are two kind of decent comparables, but you've still got footballers who we've discussed quite a bit before who are massively globally famous, not as influential in outside their sports, which we touched on last mm -hmm. time. So, you know, thanks very much for the email. Uh, I still think there's some holes in the argument. Um, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And we, and we have discussed this as being very subjective. So, um, mm. you know, let, let's let's keep the conversation going. Um, I'm sure it will. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will, will rage on. Um, um, I have to, I have to, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I have to, I have to make an admission. Um, in in the WhatsApp chat that I started to to clarify this, it came up that um, while nothing that Jenny said is untrue, it was unprompted and it was pretty much as you said. One of them said, "That Serena." The other said, "Yes, yes." I was going to say that, uh, but before they said Serena, Kevin said Tiger Woods. Now I. Oh, had really? genuinely forgotten this. This was not, I'd, I'd forgotten that that had happened, but that was their recollection of it. Uh, so, but I think we've already ruled Tiger Woods out categorically. So that, 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 you know, I think the point stands. Should we move on? Yeah, we, well, we can move on slightly because something I wanted to pick up from last time, which I mentioned, and um, mm. it's just come up a couple of times in the discussion about, people's influence as sports people and their deals outside of sports and then we talked last time about golf as well and how who's going to be the next person to kind of carry on the mantra is it Rory McIlroy who's the like super famous person who will bring golf outside of the kind of and I'd forgotten that um so there's like two major brands of computer games who do a lot of sports games uh, EA Sports, mm. which is like really, really famous and everyone knows, and 2K Sports, who do a really big basketball game, and they've picked up quite a big golf game. And the last one tied in with Justin Thomas, who's quite a famous, a very famous, um, I think he's world number two or three at the moment behind Dustin Johnson. And we talked about the players last week, last time, and I predicted that Lee Westwood wouldn't win because it's Lee Westwood, and I was right for once. It was won by Justin Thomas. He yep. was the cover athlete for the last golf game, and he's been dropped because of a, an unfortunate uh, sort of swearing at himself incident, which could be seen as slightly homophobic, and he got dropped by Ralph Lauren. Oh. Um, but he... So what they're looking for is a new person to grace the cover. Right. And, you know that is going to be a good indication of who is the most influential golfer at the moment, 
who they see as bringing more appeal. Mm. So they've announced their deal this week with the cover athlete, it's Tiger Woods. <laughs> right. So I think that yeah. kind of confirms where golf is and his continuing influence. So It does. Um, Fair enough. Well, if anyone wants to add to what is the continuing um, debate on this podcast of who is the most famous sports person in the world, uh, it's franklywhocarespod at gmail.com. Oh, I've got my usual retraction. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> there is, um, I've, I think this is one of the more kind of justifiable ones. So I said last time, the Six Nations, we were talking about... Uh, sort of the inequalities of, of coverage and scheduling when it comes to women's sport um and that this the women's six nations have been cancelled it hasn't been cancelled it hasn't started yet it starts next weekend but it was only announced in the last week when it was going to happen and certainly as recently as wednesday or thursday they still hadn't confirmed when all the fixtures in the six nations were going to be even though it's due to start so it is clearly a little like all over the place uh, in terms of yeah. of organisation compared to um, compared to the men's tournament, and the men's tournament has had some issues because they had to rearrange the last game because of COVID because France uh, violated their bubble and went and had waffles when they played in Italy. So, oh, yes. um, which I mean, I could do a whole pod on the injustice of that, but. <laughs> All's well and save well. that for the injustices, uh, gold, silver, <laughs> yeah. bronze, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, it just, yeah, I think it just backs up a point of, of it's always a bit, seems a bit of an afterthought, doesn't it? Really, it does. But having said that, um, so we were talking last week about, uh, you know, yeah, women's champions league being played in the afternoon, uh, the next round also was as well, mm. but, um, very in better news. Uh, there's been a big announcement this week that from next season, the WSL, uh, Sky and the BBC are jointly going to be showing the games. Okay. So the Beeb have committed to showing uh, games on BBC One and BBC Two. Uh, usually they sort of tuck their games away on, on the red button. Yeah, I play, um, yeah. And the app and iPlayer. Um, which is great. You, Sky don't do things by heart, so you know that they're going to promote it. The fact it's on the BBC will get will lead to millions of people watching it. I mean, yesterday was a North London derby, which I had to watch on um, the FA player, which you sort of register on, and then you can watch it for free. But how many people are going to do that? Finished 3 nil to Arsenal, by the way. North London remains red. But um, uh, it just very, yeah, really, really good news for, for the women's game, because that, I think, is going to be a game changer. Um, yeah, that sort of level of deal. So that's on the more positive side. That's the good news. And uh, Man United women had their first ever game at Old Trafford yesterday. They did. Yeah, so, they won two nil. Mm. Uh, really annoyingly, they haven't hadn't had a team for years. Came into, uh, got promoted in their first season, and they were good straight away. It's so annoying. But uh, is that just they, they just yeah. bore everyone? They've got yeah, they've got a really good coach um, who's a, a really successful England. Um, uh, football star herself, Casey Stoney, and they've yeah they've brought in some good players, but but lots of teams have done that. But annoyingly, Manly were just good already mm. above Arsenal this season. Or, well, it's only on goal difference really at the moment, but yeah, it does annoy me. But it's good that my hatred has has flowed on to the women's game. <laughs> but so that's the positive for me. Equality through mm. equal levels of hatred, like it. Very much so. <laughs>
I was going to follow up on uh, the the injustices of the reorganisation of the Six Nations game, but uh, Scott, we're, we're fresh off the back of uh, Scotland closing their campaign with a last minute heroic victory over France, mm. which um, I mean I enjoyed on several levels, not just being a Scotland fan. Um, we did in the very first pod we did a preview of the Six Nations, and and I said that. Um, what I really want from my team is to be as peak Scotland as humanly possible. And this, this, this campaign has really, I mean, surpassed what I thought was capable. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, losing at home to Wales by a single point, uh, getting basically thrashed by Ireland, but somehow managing to pull it level with two minutes to go only to still manage to lose beating England away, beating France away. Um, and yeah, it's just been an absolute roller coaster. I think the only predictable thing in Scotland Six Nations, uh, which has been the same throughout the whole tournament, really, is that we we smashed Italy because they are hopeless. But even then, they scored first. So mm. yeah, it's been um, it's been a, a roller coaster ride, and and it was good to see the French doing some quite peak French things as well. So um, yeah, I've already mentioned getting the game cancelled by. going out for waffles they could have kicked the ball out at the end and taken the win um but the guy decided that they'd try and go for another try uh, because they needed another bonus point to win the six nations so scoring a try would have got them in the bonus point but that to win the six nations they'd have also had to get 18 points for that try which isn't possible right so maybe he could have done the maths before yeah so i think he suddenly had a bit of brain freeze um and in that second of sort of brain freeze uh, a Scotland guy tackled him and then one of the French guys gave away a penalty gifting Scotland the final chance but um, it was a grandstand finish with Scotland pounding the line and for about four minutes um, and so it was I mean it always frustrates me they call it injury time but it's not injury time because this the clock starts and stops it's just waiting for that next stoppage and I, but I still thought, well, it's Scotland, so we're going to cock this up, aren't we? Like, I'm, I'm not even, even my excitement is tempered by the fact that we're definitely going to cock this up. And yeah, we, we, um, finally saw the space out wide, um, and threw out to our young Scott, Duhan van der Merwe in the corner, or Iron Do, as he's become known, uh, <laughs> to Excellent. squeeze his 19 stone frame over in the corner so so yeah it's been um been an amazing tournament and and it's really kind of hotting up the lions chat now with england being pretty poor yeah throughout, only winning uh against france at home narrowly and then italy which everyone did um there's quite a lot of england players who are massively out of form but still being picked for england um so there's sort of talk about whether gatland will pick players who aren't playing for their country maybe because they're in better form or or whether they'll focus more on uh, the other nations historically Gatland not without reason has said the Scottish teams are soft so he doesn't pick many Scots because they don't win away from home but we've won both of our games this year away from home so hopefully we'll get more than the sort of token three Scots that tend to go on Lion tours but we've got and it's been announced this week that that Lions tour is definitely as definite as things can be at the moment going ahead to South Africa so we've got a good few months of speculating about who who will go and who's going to be fit and who's not 
So that's always always good fun with the, uh, yeah. the Lions squad and who's going to be the bolters and, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think um, it, a part of spring is is Six Nations coming to a close, and I feel like it's been it's been a real really good one this year. It has, yeah. I, I was I, I, I was surprised that when I got the message from you. Uh, about you having having won that because uh, I didn't see the game and the one, last time I checked you were behind. I thought not coming back into this. No, uh, no. We um we had a red card as well with about ten minutes to go. We saw well, that's the end of wow. that. But then can, thirty seconds later, the French guy, a French guy got simbined as well. Peak France. So um, yeah. yeah, I mean it's a, it was a triumph <laughs> overall for the lucky shirt, which I I dug out for the for the game. So and we did. Yeah. There were a few things that we did get a little bit lucky and prepared to prepared to accept. So mm, thanks um, to the shirt. Thanks to to the shirt, yeah. So mm. yeah, but Great. I mean it's another Six Nations games on Friday night are really good. I mean, I know it's mm. a pain to get there if you're spectating, but it's just, you know, Friday night after work with a few beers, brilliant. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has been really good, really good. Looking forward to the Lions tour as well when it comes. So Formula One has returned this weekend, which, as I've said, I'm really excited about. Um, In fact, I think, I'm not sure why, but this is probably the most excited I've been about any sport starting since the lockdown. Okay. So more excited than I was last year about Formula One. Uh, I was quite excited about the Tour de France, quite like that when that started last year. But this, I don't know. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, but yeah, I think it's going to be a, a good season. Um, Formula One. How, how? What are your thoughts on Formula One? Are you a fan? I'm not. I'm not a fan, but I, I don't dislike it. It's just there's only so much sport you can watch, isn't there? Um, and it's yeah. I I think the formative years of when I've watched it. So um, I remember watching it. So my dad's really keen on it. So I'd have watched it when it was on the BBC a lot. And you know, sort of Mansell, Prost, Senna. I remember the Senna race very clearly. Um, and then going on to sort of Damon Hill, uh, Villeneuve, Michael yeah. Schumacher. But then when Michael Schumacher started dominating. Um, it lost a bit of, I lost a bit of interest, really. Um, mm. And so, and that's, so that's been kind of my relationship with it. I, I did, I think the first year that Hamilton watched, uh, Hamilton won, was quite an exciting finish. Yeah, um, and uh, I think it was a Brazilian Grand Prix and I watched that on a Sunday night. But yeah, I'm, I'm not an avid follower. Mm. Um, so, I've I've done what I my, my sort of supporting of, of Formula One teams is normally based on is who's got the the sort of uh, flashiest paint job. Ah, so I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking through them at the moment. I, I mean the Aston Martin in sort of racing green. Their, yeah, their um, overalls look really nice as well. So I've, I've, yeah. I've, also, Aston Martin I don't associate as being an F1 team. They're quite new, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Um, um, mm-hmm. They've just come back into the sport. Yeah, it does look really good. Yeah, so, I can't be denied. I mean, there should be bonus points for that. Let's be honest. <laughs> I, 
I did think of one there, one of one that's on our long list for gold, silver, bronze. Dean Macy as rules that yeah. we should have in sport, uh -huh. um, which I think is definitely one for audience participation as well. In <laughs> I but, agree. Yeah, I, I think the old um, points, yeah, points for artistic good. merit. <laughs> <laughs> That isn't a bad show. It's better than some of the rules they come up with anyway. Um, it's funny you saying that about um, the Schumacher years, because I was looking back and th thinking about uh, myself watching it. And that is one one of the things for me um, is that I think the period where I didn't really watch much of it was when he started winning all the time. So he won five in a row. Um, and yeah, by the end of those five, I wasn't as into it. And then that carried on into Alonso sort of period. And then I picked it back up yeah. with Hamilton as well. Um, but um, but as I've said, I think it's interesting you saying there's only so many sports you can watch. Because I think, and and on this podcast, obviously, four is the magic number on this podcast. Four things for like, the, the gold, silver, bronze, Dean Macy, for example. So I thought um, I'd talk through four reasons why you should Watch Formula One, not just you, but everyone should watch it. Okay. And why it's a really good sport. Do you want me so, to? I'm going to critique your response, obviously. Cause... I would expect no less. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to start, I'm going to build up to what I consider is that, you know, the, I'll start with what, you know, the weakest ones and move up to what I think is actually the, the, the strongest reason. So, where, where in the four is, is they've got really nice paint jobs. Is that not? <laughs> I, you'll have to wait and see where that comes into. <laughs> so, uh, for, right, the first thing is the racing itself, the actual watching the races. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's just an exciting sport. I mean, you've watched it in the past, so you must have enjoyed it when you watched it. You've got cars driving at like up to like two hundred miles an hour, overtaking each other. Um, it's 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 really dangerous. It's genuinely dangerous, and we saw last year with a, a big crash with Grosjean where there was that fireball. People would have probably seen that, even if you don't watch Formula One. You could forget how dangerous it is because um, uh, it's so much safer than it used to be. Uh, but every time they go out there, it's it's a real risk overtaking someone driving at those sort of speeds. It is really thrilling to watch um, uh, when it's a Grand Prix that has lots of overtaking opportunities, which I know is not all of them. Uh, but there's some other drama, which I'll come to. Um, but I just think the racing itself is just so good. I I don't think that's a uniform thing, and you've touched on that. It's like there's some of them which which are not like that. I, I, I've always quite liked the Monaco Grand Prix just because you kind of remember the track and it looks amazing, but actually yeah. it can't. Um, it's impossible can't really to overtake anyway. But I do remember watching a Monaco Grand Prix where I think about three people finished. So this is <laughs> yes. like the late nineties. Um, so you know, I, I um, yeah, I take that. I, I think the slightly weird thing about Formula One is there's always a sort of way up of of going to watch sport or watching on TV, and I mm. think it looks miles. It must be miles better to watch on TV because if you're in there, you're just seeing them streak past, um, and you can't see you know most of the track i would imagine although i've i've not, never been mm. but the 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 speed and the noise would be much more apparent which you don't really get on tv like you said they're going really fast they don't actually look like they're going that fast um yeah they do from certain angles yeah yeah well yeah mm. so um <laughs> yeah so, so okay. I, I i think it's i i think it 
it just benefits from competition like anything else doesn't it and and that's that we talk when it's dom people are dominating it's i don't think it's as watchable and well, like in the schumacher days if it was raining you just didn't watch because he's gonna win <laughs> so <laughs> well that's true but these days uh, a wet race is, is the great leveler there are some people who are really good in 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 the wet but those are always always good races but it's funny you should mention domination because the second reason why i think you should watch it is because of the legend uh that is lewis hamilton and the fact that now he has won uh six i think of the last seven um world titles uh with rosberg winning the other one right. who was his teammate yeah um and i th we're running out of time lewis hamilton is one of the greatest British sports people, if not sports people overall. But as as we've proved, who is? Hmm. Um he um yeah, so he he is he's he's in his prime or he's just sort of coming to the end of it. I feel like um this would be a good season to watch uh, and enjoy Lewis Hamilton while you still can. You but you can only go on for so long at that level. Um he is up there with the all time sporting greats just to watch his consistency and his brilliance and i think he's one of the people that because of his success and longevity and him carrying on at that level even people that don't haven't sort of liked him have started to admire him and they realize he is really good um and yeah so he's up there schumacher was another i think he was probably apart from the hardcore fans and ferrari fans i think he was admired more than he was loved but he really was admired. Yeah, well, he had end. those two incidents, didn't he, where he just blatantly drove into people to win the World Championship. I think that was his first well, World Championship when he, he, like, clearly just bumped off Damon Hill to win. It's interesting that you say that, though, because Damon Hill has never blamed him. David, I was I was so angry when yeah. Damon Hill came out and didn't just, just slag him off. Damon Hill said, no, he was still racing me. It was a racing incident. Which I couldn't believe because obviously all everyone, all of us watching were, were yeah, infuriated. Yeah. All he has to do is go past him, and he's effectively won the world title. I think Schumacher did it on purpose. Um, you very but, specifically, um, I remember seeing the wheel, the hands on the wheel, and him just going, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, it's like, mm, yeah." Um, but uh, yeah, but he was—he certainly admired and, and revered as a great um, sports person, uh, Schumacher and and Hamilton, like I say, because of their longevity. Um, I don't know if you can think of other people in other sports who sort of have that sort of status where they're just for being around for a long time, people start to appreciate their brilliance. Um, yeah, much more. Um, I'd, I'd say they're a little bit more. I had put Schumacher when you, you mentioned this to me before. Mm. I think anyone who gets to like an unbelievable level of consistency in, in a difficult sport to, to, to achieve that, I think, uh, you do kind of come round to having a begrudging respect for. Um, and I think the tennis players, I do find that they're a bit... Tennis is a bit easier to dominate because it's it's a knockout kind of structure. You don't have to beat everyone like you do in golf. But um, I think Djokovic, it looked like he wasn't going to get to the same level as like Federer and Nadal. And then he just persisted with some things that... I suspect over time may may become illegal, uh, sort of blood treatments and things like that, um, allegedly. Mm -hmm. So, allegedly. Uh, mm -hmm. but I have no kind of affinity with him. 
it just he's a, just a bit of a machine and grinds I think that's a really and I think I'd much rather yeah. watch Federer in action than than Djokovic. That's a really good yeah. Djokovic is a really good example of that. I mean, he's reached unbelievable levels in a period where he's up against some of the best players of all time. Really consistent, hard to love, but um, yeah, definitely got got to admire. He's got a bit of gamesmanship in there as well. There's times yeah. when he's looking like he's not going to finish the match, and then suddenly he's like, yeah, back hundred percent. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that's a really good example. I really grew a lot of respect for Djokovic as a player just because of how consistent he has been, particularly in a couple of seasons where it was virtually unbeatable. Um, and Hamilton certainly has, has, has got to that level in Formula One. So, yes, I would say good reason to watch it this season is just to see in a season where it could be a bit more competitive how great he really is. Mm. Um, third reason, third reason is the coverage. So you talked about it maybe being better watching it on telly because you see the whole thing than being being in the uh, in the audience. So um, the coverage of Formula One is arguably the best coverage of any sport, I would say. Okay. Right, and we have an ITV to thank for this. So in um, the late nineties, they took over from BBC. So when I used to watch it when I was when I was young, it was usually in something like Sunday Grandstand or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five minutes for the race, they cut over, and they did have Murray Walker, who carried on in ITV actually as a commentator, who isn't around anymore, died recently, um, but an absolute legend of a commentator. So ITV completely transformed how uh, Formula One is is shown. They turned every race into an event. An hour, at least an hour of build-up beforehand, interviews, behind-the-scenes stuff. They were in the garages, they were in the pits, the grid walk um, yeah, that, that yeah. they initiated with Mark, Martin Brundle, um, sort of walking on the grid, interviewing people, uh, the, the the drivers and other people behind the scenes, celebrities who, who were there, and it felt like you took brought you into the race and the glamour of it. Uh, that 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 was great. Um, IT, yeah, ITV transformed that. And then the BBC got it back and they kept that approach. Sky have taken that approach, Channel 4 now. Um, talking of ITV, though, so ITV had two presenters for their Formula One coverage during the period when they had it, right? Uh, so this is 1997 to 2008. Who do you think the two presenters, these two ITV presenters from that era were? Do you, I don't know if you remember, but if not, give me, give me your first guess. I, so my recollection is that Steve mm. Ryder's in there. Steve Ryder is one of them. Um, is it a presenter rather than a Formula F1? Because Martin Brundle... A presenter. Not, yeah. A presenter, very much of that era. Uh, ITV. Ooh, of that era. Um, I'm just quite pleased with Steve Ryder, to be honest. Oh, Jim <laughs> Rosenthal. Absolutely, Brilliant. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you, uh, you would have massively disappointed me if you hadn't got those two. Jim Rosenthal was the presenter and then uh, for, for about the first nine years and then Steve Ryder from 2006, you know, solid ITV, safe pair of hands. Um, and yeah, the coverage is just great. And it, it's got even better recently since Bernie Eccleston has, has left. It's under new management and the, um, the, info, the even more access uh, behind the scenes the uh, the info you get on screen they've come up with these brilliant new graphics and things so we can where you can see all the gaps between the different drivers it's really really it's gone up a, a quite a few levels uh in terms of just uh, giving you enough info if you're an absolute sort of motor head who 
yeah. wants all of the info or if you're just somebody who is new to it it's done in quite an accessible way and um because i'm because i'm so looking forward to it i started watching this this netflix series i don't know if you've seen it on netflix it's called drive to I've survive seen it trailed. i haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah it, it's quite cheesy but it's actually not bad it's one of these behind the scenes things where you actually see all the conversations they're having behind um in their garages and it focuses on a couple of different teams each episode and you find out what was going on in the background yeah pretty good for that sort of thing um so yeah, the co I just think the coverage is absolutely brilliant. The Formula One it brings you into the race, makes it a real event. I think um, it's quite interesting talking about coverage at the moment because um, one, if there's been any upsides at all of of the sort of lockdown and COVID going on, there's been more sport on, uh, which we've touched on and arguably too much. They've had to dig out some people to do some presenting because the well has run dry. And I've seen more of Jim Rosenthal in the last year than I've seen from quite a few years before presenting some really, <laughs> yeah. really tenuous stuff. Um, <laughs> but I do love it when someone like that appears out of nowhere. So like every Christmas, World's Strongest Man presented by James Richardson. You're like, how? <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that is, um, I mean, I know a lot of people slag off the BBC a lot and um, they did a lot of sports coverage and it had kind of got to a like a really default service at level test match cricket was a mm. classic example of that and then as soon as it went anywhere else even terrestrial it massively got got changed and updated and i think what will also happen now is because bbc is really short on money is that they're not making as many programs that are expensive to make if they do sport, they're going to have to give more time to it because yep. you're only bumping like Mrs. Brown's boys down the order. So you might as well spend more time showing it. Um, and so the, the Scotland France game on Friday night, rescheduled Friday night game, peak time, BBC one. And I thought that's yeah. really good because it, you, you'd expect it would be on BBC two, but also cause it's not England and it's, and you know, it, it's not the majority of people who watch BBC will be in England just for the numbers. So it feels like they will think a bit more about how they present sport now. Um, and I think, yeah, um, I've seen this thing online with the F1. I need to, I should have done way more research on this. It's like you have a, so you're watching F1 on TV, but then you have like a screen in your coffee table and mm -hmm. it, it's a, a diagram of this, the, um circuit circuit and it shows where everyone is on that is that that must yeah. be a thing so they've they've in they introduced that actually about 10 years ago or so where you can you can watch that that separate thing it's got all the data and you can click on different screens and, and find out what the gaps are and data within each car even now wow. um where they are on the screen so some of these things are brought up of during the coverage but for people who are really into it um, yeah, you can do that too <laughs> and have that second screen with absolutely all the detail on data and dashboards. Um, yeah, yeah, it is, they, they really have, they've just they've come it, on really strongly. It sort of strikes me as the sort of sport where a lot of people are massive absolute fiends for it as well. So they will spend the money on, and I mean, I think my, I, I've often wondered what it would take to, for my dad to not have Sky Sports. Because like that's the thing he just cannot see life without Sky Sports, <laughs> and because it's got all the F1 and it's all on demand and you can watch it back and, and I think through look, the first lockdown he just watched bloody 
F1 races from 2006, just, you know, because, yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, the Sky, because it's not all on Channel 4, is it? Some of them are just on Sky. Yeah, Channel uh, 4 do highlights of every race, but... Um, so the coverage is basically Sky-driven, isn't it? So you get all the stuff on Sky. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's a fair point. Which brings me to the, the fourth reason, which is that it, for me, the, the main reason. So, so you come for the racing, you witness the legend, uh, and uh, you enjoy the coverage, but really you stay for the soap opera. It's, it's all the rest of the stuff um, uh, that is around the actual race. That's the thing that hooks you in. Um, and particularly by getting much more access than we ever have, um, you can really like, for example, hearing their radios in the car and the conversations they're having, or the whinging about their teammates and things like that. The fanaticism as well of the fans. You've, mm. you've sort of talk, talked about that too. People really, I didn't realise until I really got into F, F1 in the Hamilton era, era, how 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 passionate the fans are. They hate they hate certain people because they think they know them because you get you get to find out a lot about the characters of the of the drivers from the ways they behave um there's all sorts of things that happen there's all sorts of subplots there's like teammates having feuds against each other taking each other out there's there's massive strops that something vettel's a right winger you know he's got forward titles he's always moaning um the, the year where rosberg and hamilton um had their, uh, uh, where Rosberg uh, actually beat him to the title. It took everything he had to beat him to the point where he retired immediately after doing it because he, he knew that that, that that was him spent. <laughs> um, but just the, just the, the back and forth between them and the, the strops and the in-team arguments. Um, there are, yeah, there's subplots everywhere. There's only 20 Formula One drivers. So, you know, the elite level of sport is only 20 people. So you can get to know a lot about each of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and about 20 more this year, more races than ever. 23 races they're going to try and cram in. I think they're doing that in case some of them get cancelled. You've still got, got, got a lot of races there. But it's all that other stuff that, that hooks you in. Because as, as we've said before, some of the races aren't that exciting, but there's always incidents. There's subplot. always things that come out of them. There is always subplots. And that, for me, is, is what people stay for. Thoughts? I, yeah, I I don't disagree. I mean, I've I've looked up, I've done a bit of research, which is unlike me on on this wow. season, um, and I do. It looks to me like there there's some sort of older, so older older guys are back, which which adds to it. I always like, and we touched on this in a previous pod, um, second generational sportsmen and remembering their dads i'm assuming it's their dads for the most part because it's the same yeah. thing but there's at least so you've got fernando and on alonso's back um kimi raikkonen's back as well um i thought to see to me he'd gone he was long gone um, so he's never gone really? <laughs> he's always been yeah, yeah he's always I mean, been he, there he's, he's just looking pretty rough i'd say but <laughs> that's what a career of f1 might do to you very um, much so i mean i was going to make the observation that um Finland do seem to punch above their weight quite a lot, don't they? In uh, um, they do in in F one in terms of the very small number of people who uh, make it, it's quite an unusual uh, a high proportion of a very small country, which is covered in snow almost all year round. Yeah, um, true. So uh, yeah, because I remember Mika Hakkinen winning uh, 
winning the whole thing, didn't he? Um, Two world titles, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's um, mm. so the, yeah that you've got obviously Mick Schumacher, uh, Carlos yeah. Sainz. Do you remember his his dad was Carlos Sainz, the a really famous rally driver who sort of was him and Colin McRae. Um, no, all right, okay. No, I so know. yeah, um, he's a Ferrari. He's at Ferrari now. And then mm-hmm. um, Max Verstappen, I remember Josh Verstappen going up yeah. a massive fireball when uh, um, yes in the nineties when the, it was just mm-hmm. they were filling in with petrol and you saw all this petrol like go go out and you were like that doesn't look <laughs> like. <laughs> mm-hmm. and last but not least not apropos of nothing Lando Norris I mean who yeah. calls that child Lando <laughs> it's enough, I think it's brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, he's British, yeah. isn't he? And he is, I think. I'm looking him up. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this is the thing. There are quite a few good young um, drivers around. There's Lance Stroll, whose dad's a billionaire and has got him into his team as a driver. But he's, you know, he's a good driver. Obviously, he wouldn't yeah, be in yeah. Formula One anyway. Um, as with Mick Schumacher, who was his current Formula Two world champion. So, um, you know, these are good. These are good drivers. Yeah, look, the, this feels like a a bit of a changing of the the guard season. Um, I still think Hamilton's going to win it. Everyone's getting really excited because the Red Bulls look really competitive. But I think it's probably a season too soon. Um, but I think this next uh, group of drivers are going to come through this season, and I think it could mix things up a lot at the top of the grid. So. Yeah, Lando very, Norris was born in um, born in Bristol, so was it? Lando to his mate. Amazing. On to gold, silver, bronze. Dean Macy then, which this week focuses on sporting flops and disappointments. So we're looking at uh, people that have. Uh, disappointed at elite level specifically so right should we get started tom yeah so i i wasn't exactly sure where to kind of set my bar here because um i've got you know some some people who've who failed on a step up or having promised a lot or maybe moved to bigger clubs and things like that so um so some of them are a bit open to debate, but I thought I thought that would be a good thing. But um, but I've got to start with one of my uh, childhood heroes when I um, first started watching cricket and following cricket uh, in the nineties. Now we are old enough to remember England in the nineties as a Test yeah. team, and uh, I play cricket with quite a lot of people who are sort of ten to fifteen years younger than me and who just you could tell them stories and they just wouldn't believe you about how many people they picked and how many people they picked for a single test mm. and then dropped them and anyway the the kind of great hope for english cricket in um in the 90s was they had two promising young batsmen who never really failed who never really made it for england and my absolute hero in the 90s was mark ramprakash yep um, and Pull this work up. <laughs> yeah, I I loved him so much. He was such a good fielder. He's such a good batsman, um, and he uh, he broke into the England team in 1991, 
when he'd have been uh, sort of 22, which is very young. You know, it's still quite young now for an England test bat, but at the time more so. And then he just never quite, quite fit in then. And then there was various reasons why he kept getting dropped and picked and dropped and picked. Some justified, I think, psychologically, he he got just became an absolute wreck when he played for England at certain stages. And I think now, I think they'd handle him a lot better. Um, and I'd like to think he'd have, have, have done much better for the sort of Duncan Fletcher era team, although Duncan Fletcher ultimately was his final coach. That, but that sort of process and the Andy Flower era going on would have, would have yeah. been better for him. Um, but his record in, so I've, I've got some loads of stats on this. Um, so I so just before you get to that, I, I my memory of him is him just getting out for twenty seven every every test. That's what I remember. So this has come up. His first <laughs> test, he scored twenty seven in each innings, which turned out to be his test average. <laughs> so his yes, his test average wow. twenty seven from fifty two matches. So. And that just goes to show how good he was, was that they couldn't quite give up on him. They always wanted yeah. to get him in and bring him back. Um, but within that, he averaged 40 against Australia, who in that period were an unbelievable bowling yeah. attack. Like they had won for basically his entire career, but McGrath, mm. Gillespie, uh, Lee, uh, Craig McDermott, people like that, incredible players. Um, and then he... Uh, he's got two test hundreds, one at the Oval in 2001, which was like 145 against McGrath, Warren. It was turning, you know, um, Lee, Gillespie, and one away in Barbados against Ambrose, Walsh, Ian Bishop. And so he wow. clearly had it. His first class record is unbelievable. So he scored 114 hundreds in in 2006 uh, at the age of 37 he averaged over 100 and then at the end of the season he entered and won strictly <laughs> he then okay he averaged over 100 in another series uh, in another season as well in his mid to late 30s which if anything gives gives me hope that my my best days are still ahead of me um <laughs> but it just his then his England batting record. So I've um I don't know if you you know the the website the ESPN Crick Info, but yes, it's got mm -hmm. uh, Stats Guru, which is the um the like the search tool, oh, an absolute yeah. wormhole. So I've gone through <laughs> the um so from 1980 onwards, England batsmen to have played 20 tests or more. So it's a, a proportionate sort of sample size. Uh who's got the lowest average and it's um mark ramprakash is sort of around so that the people immediately either side of mark ramprakash are uh moeen ali who's so okay. basically a bowling all-rounder for england mm -hmm. chris wokes who opens the bowling right. jack russell who was a wicketkeeper who mm -hmm. was often dropped because of his batting but he still managed the same number of centuries as mark ramprakash and basically the same average uh, Tim Bresnan, bowler. Oh. Sam Curran, bowler, who bats a bit. The only one who you could say really below him, there's there's two wicket keepers who are below Marm Prakash, and that's Geraint Jones 
and Paul Downton, who is now, I think, the CEO of England Cricket. So, and it's just, uh, it was just unbelievable at the time that someone who was so good, he averaged, his career averaged 56 in first class cricket, just couldn't cut it for England. And yeah, it was just such a disappointment. I loved him so much. I used to get so nervous when he played for England. And I was so made up when he finally got his first hundred, which is the Barbados one. And it just, you just thought he'd kick on and, you know, yeah. then he got one at, at home and you thought, great, but within a year he was, he was gone. Um, and he carried on playing and, and you'll probably remember the 2009 ashes, which was one in this country, England mm. had, I think an injury for the penultimate test and they needed a batsman at the oval and Rampakash was still one of the best batsmen in England. And he was talked about being recalled. And he'd have been 40. Yeah, just, just 39. So, and there was a serious, there was serious talk about him being recalled for that. But instead, they picked Jonathan Trott, who got 100. And, you know, the right. rest of his history went on to become a, an incredibly uh, successful batsman for England. Ironically, mm. played exactly the number, same, same number of tests as Rampakash. Uh, I see. Hmm. But average 44. And, and yeah, so to me, he is the archetypal, too good for first-class cricket, but not quite good enough for test cricket. So that that is an incredibly strong case, brilliantly researched. Um, yeah, I, I was a big fan of Rampakash, not as much of a fan as you by the sound of it, but um, but just so disappointed by by what he did for England. And I had no idea quite how good he was um, out, you know, in in his club career so that is the yeah. as you say the definition of flopping at elite level because what yeah. you want is someone who's really good at, at uh at the level under that and that's, i think couldn't be much better really the, the the closest current example um in terms of is in the england cricket setup is joss butler and you, you wouldn't say he's he's failed to deliver at elite level because he's one of the best one day bats <laughs> in the world but his test record is he averages 34 and he has played quite a lot as a specialist bat so so that's the only one where you you would think you, you could argue that that he hasn't brought his one day form to but it's a different game really and, yeah you know I, it just yeah for me mark yeah mm. good good one what what an excellent start right okay so uh, my first one is John Barnes for England, uh, and it one of the first people I thought he he is the now you could argue there've been tons of England players who have flopped and haven't really um, taken their, their their club form to the international scene, um, but for me John Barnes he got I think he got some of that eighty six caps he got a lot of caps, um, and if, if I was to say to you yeah what what give me some examples of games where john barnes did well what would what comes to your mind oh he scored a famous golden in against brazil in the maracana oh, maracana yeah uh, mm -hmm. otherwise i don't really so, remember him playing for england because because 1990 was when i first watched mm. properly properly watched football because um yeah i'm a fair bit younger than you but um <laughs> <laughs> the uh and he was injured in 1990. I think he got injured during the tournament. He started, yeah, he, yeah. He started the tournament, didn't do much. So, so you've got the 86 World Cup, where he comes on 
in the last match against Argentina and does a brilliant 20-minute cameo, sets up Lineker for one goal, does exactly the same thing and somehow, incredible defending, Lineker doesn't quite get there. Um, He's just completely brilliant there. 88 Euros. Um, Barnes has had the best season of his career, one of the best seasons any England players had. Really, he was phenomenal that year. Uh, 87, 88 Liverpool team, one of the best Liverpool teams there were. No European football around that time as well which is part of the issue because these days Champions League level is so high that if someone performs at that level, you can still see their their greatness. Um, but it was really England or, or nothing for him to really prove it. So, yeah, 86 World Cup, little cameo. 88 Euros didn't do anything. England team was a massive disappointment. Yeah. 1990 started, didn't do much. England team went on to obviously get really close to the final and potentially winning it. They had quite an iffy Barnes start, was... they didn't they, in that tournament. They were quite bad against Ireland they... and then only just got out yeah. of groups. Yeah, that's right. And then it sort of uh, it all kicked on from there. But Barnes was such a brilliant um, player. And as an Arsenal fan, when he was at Watford, he tormented us all the time. The fir- first match I ever went to in person was at Arsenal v Watford FA Cup match. John Barnes and as usual, tore us apart. Um, Luther Blissett, the two of them seem to always do well against us, but Barnes in particular, we just hated him. And he ne- then he nearly joined Arsenal, which would have been great, uh, but he joins Liverpool instead. Uh, so, right, do you remember right at the start of the lockdown, we um, we were messaging about, uh, so they had like an FA Cup look back, because it was all the football had been cancelled, and they had on the yeah, yes. they had, and it was Watford Arsenal, and you messaged. It was that game, the first game I've ever been to, <laughs> yes. and there was massively controversial goal, wasn't there? Really controversial, yeah. Offside, which Barnes was involved in. Um, obviously, still not bitter over thirty years later about that, but um, but Barnes, yeah, for me, just in terms of just never doing it for England, and he had enough opportunities to do it, and there were players in that era who did perform well for England consistency: Lineker, Beardsley, lots of defenders. You know, it wasn't like the the team itself necessarily inhibited you from from doing well, which has been the case at times more recently, with the, the Capello and Steve McLaren eras being standing out, for example. Um, so I just I just feel like considering the ta- the incredible talent that he had, particularly in that late eighties period, and what he produced for England, I can't I, the disappoint the. Yeah, disappointment is just huge. He just didn't get anywhere near what he was able to do at club level. So I, I've got one that sort of links quite nicely to that. Um, okay. I, yeah, I do like... The, I don't think I saw much of John Barnes at his peak in the club mm. game, potentially. Because mm-hmm. um, he, he, he just didn't seem to be on it that much in the 90s. I would say he's quite injury prone. I think the late 80s was slightly his, past his best in the end. Yeah, yeah, was his heyday, which was before I, I started watching football. Hmm. But um, so from Italia 90, we go on into the Euro 92 and World Cup 94 qualifying campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not unreasonable to expect that if you get a team, a club promoted into the uh, Premier League and then you lead them to second place in their first season in the Premier League, that you'd get the England job. Well, Graham Taylor did. Mm -hmm. And it was a flop, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Having kind of been... And it was quite a big turning point for football, wasn't it? Because it was Premier League basically started in 92. um, 
hooliganism was really kind of being pushed out and it was being becoming a much more kind of decent day out um england teams returned to europe and i think the audience for football on the back of italia 90 really kind of yeah pushed the sport on and that's obviously where the massive money started as well mm-hmm. um but the england team had two pretty disastrous major tournaments immediately after so uh and graham taylor presided over that um yep. and just picked some real jobbing prem midfielders and i i did a bit of sort of looking up who who's the worst player who ever played for england and a lot of the at least half the ones suggested are in the graham taylor era so sort of yeah carlton palmer stuart ripley uh, David Hurst, Jeff you know, Thomas, yeah, Jeff Thomas, um, who, and it was, I suppose it was difficult because you didn't have the Champions League kind of comparison to say, well, if they're good in the Champions League, they're clearly good. That's the sort of halfway house. And, yeah. and the European Cup even then was sort of pretty much knockout still. So you, you wouldn't necessarily get the same number of games. It's quite, and I, I think it's quite hard to tell where England players are complete flops because England cruise through their qualification groups now. It's yeah. so easy. And then they'll have two or three really easy games at a tournament and then two difficult ones. So it really boils down to like very few games. Uh, and for, the, for that reason, I think it's quite difficult to tell who's an international quali- quality player. Cause, and you yeah. have like Ollie Watkins... Villa player made his debut for England against San Marino. Scored, of course, he scored. Like you know, playing against San Marino yeah. up front. <laughs> so <laughs> it is it is difficult to to tell, but it just felt like Graham Taylor. Um, it was he just it seemed like he would be the right man for the job, but it was a very difficult era. I think there was people probably a transitional side. I think the some of the Italian ninety players weren't. Um, were coming towards the end, so he needed to transition. Sort of Lineker was yeah. was past his best. I mean, but he still had some great players like David Platt. You know, had Gaza for some periods, but didn't pick Waddle, didn't pick Barnes that much. You know, yeah, Paul Lintz, preferred yeah, Andy Sinton, You know, mm. it's, it's those sort of decisions. Uh, I think you know, Alan Smith benefited the old Arsenal Alan Smith. Yeah, uh, only got about twelve caps though. Yeah, but uh, Graham Taylor uh, in his first match, competitive match, I think, a a match against uh, Republic of Ireland, picked Gordon Cowan's ahead of Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, I do. do Yeah. (laughs) And that's, he was, you know, I think Gordon Cowan's was the best set piece taker in the country and he wanted a big man up front. And that's how he built his teams at Villa and Watford and. Um, that's what he just wanted to replicate, but um, and I do feel a little bit for him because there's that documentary that makes him look a bit of an idiot, and um, those tracksuits were just some of the worst sports <laughs> wherever to just make him look like someone's dad, kind of trying to be a football coach, and it'd have looked yeah. so much better if he just wore a suit. And he's, a, I think he's a really, he was a really nice guy actually, and he came across really well on kind of commentaries and things over later years yeah. and I felt bad because he got an absolute roasting off the tabloids didn't he after that Holland game he did. which I mean 
you know, one of the biggest travesties of of refereeing in sport ever. It was a travesty. So for him to, yeah. to carry the can for that is pretty... Um, I mean, they were beaten pretty soundly away by Norway and, and yeah. um, it was a group they should have got out of. But there's so many... I do think, um, yeah, your, your, your Villa fan-ness is... Um, is, is is making you kinder to to Graham Taylor than he deserves because he was an absolute disaster um, who uh, ruined um, a few years of my life by making England so bad. Uh, that's how I see it. So and it, <laughs> uh, I took it very personally. So um, uh, yeah, I mean that 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 documentary, uh, yeah, wasn't present. Do I not like that and all those mm. other phrases? Yeah. Can you not know, knock it? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah exactly. that, that period has given because that's the original um, when you beat a country at sport and you name everyone famous from that country and say we give, we gave your boys one hell of a beating. Yeah, that's yeah. the original mm. one, isn't it? The Norway commentator did that. No, no, that was that was that was um, an early eighties one. That was from about nineteen eighty one. Oh, was it? I thought it was the yeah. Oh, no, no, my mistake. No, it wasn't that one. By then, Norway were just like, ah, it's only England. <laughs> By the 90s one. <laughs> uh, no, no, that, that, that was before. But, um, but yeah, Graham Taylor is a very good shout. Because I was thinking, I had in my mind Kevin Keegan and the disaster that he was and quitting in the toilets at Wembley oh, yeah. after being beaten by Germany. But it's quite Graham brief, Taylor, though, wasn't it? Um, it was, yeah. And he did qualify for a tournament in, which, um, in that period, even though we got knocked out. Uh, Euro 2000. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, was, yeah. Taylor is a good shout. Mm. Okay. All right, over to okay. you. Some good ones so far. Uh, right, so I'm going back to the mid-80s with this one. So if you think about what a, a flop at elite level, some of the key characteristics, we already talked about being sort of quite good um, uh, at, at other levels. Uh, I would say being quite hyped. Mm-hmm. Is one, yeah. Um, uh, I would say, um, when you get to that big stage, a really biggest stage, it's all about just not not delivering. And if you can add to that, just being an having an absolute catastrophe, um, that's remembered forever when you're on that stage, I think that takes it to another level. And then if you add to that all sorts of other political, um, issues around it and controversies I think you have like the perfect storm of a, of a flop I feel like so I should I'm know what's to... coming here but I'm still, I'm still not well sure. so if I say to you Zola Bird does that uh, what, what what's, yeah if I say Zola Bird to you what do you think immediately um, there's a bit of a gap in my knowledge so mm. but I can of what I know I might I could probably have an educated guess around Pete placing the pieces around so she was south african yeah uh and became a naturalized british runner competing yeah. against was it mary decker who's yes british is she northern irish american oh american okay so mm. um but during apartheid so i imagine that plays a part yeah um yeah so those are those are some of the key pieces so basically zola bird uh, was a, a South African runner, and the Daily Mail um, got involved. Apparently, one of their journalists was doing a bit of research, 
noticed that there was this South African runner who used to run bare, barefooted, um, who was uh, who was setting all sorts of uh, records over there, running really fast times that were unofficial because South Africa, obviously at that point, weren't part of the international sport community uh, because of apartheid. Um, and he managed to, uh, because he thought this would be a big story, the Daily Mail decided to go over to South Africa, offer her her family a hundred thousand uh, pounds uh, because she had a a, a granddad who was in uh, who was British to naturalize become British and they would have the exclusive rights to her story uh, so um, with pressure from the Daily Mail that happened that was fast-tracked through really really quickly um, and it was massively controversial because um, everyone could see what was happening. It was a time when there were lots of protests against apartheid and there were protests even when she started running in Britain. Um, so the context is already, you know, quite, quite uh, uh, heated. But it's at the Olympics in 84 where it all sort of comes to a head. So she had set some some records, some world records in terms of, I think, the 5,000 metres, which wasn't an Olympic sport then, 5,000 right, for women, okay. it was really 3,000. Um, and some other, uh, you know, good performances in cross country, etc. But you get to the Olympic Games uh, uh, and the the final, and uh, yeah. So Mary Decker is the current world champion from America. Uh, it's a bit of a head to head, and um, a couple of laps in, she's uh, Zola Bug goes past Mary Decker, goes to the front. Mary Decker gets quite close to her, and she trips. She trip makes contact with Zola Bud. Mary Decker trips over and is there and she's out of the race and she's lying on the side of the road. Uh, so not side of the road, sorry, side of the, the track in in a lot of pain, has to be carried off uh, the field. Um, Zola Bud, uh, affected by this uh, and um, with a bit bit cut as well on her ankle because she's and, and she's running barefoot. Um, she falls back and uh, doesn't get anywhere near the podium having right. left the race. So I think she finished maybe even seventh or something like that. She's being booed while she's running around and booed as she goes off the, off the field as so well. She's in America, of course. So it was exactly yeah yeah. yeah. So this is the LA Games. Um, so um, yeah, just a, a huge. Uh, it was a massive story. It was a huge story. Um, Solar Bud wasn't particularly popular in Britain anyway, and then that happened. She's painted as a villain um, for doing that. Um, and uh, obviously has a, just a complete disaster on the, on the biggest stage possible. She never did win a major um, a gold in a major uh, tournament, um, either before or after that, and she sort of just gradually um, disappeared into the background, then re became South African again and ran for them a bit later. So an absolute disaster. Now, there is a bit more to the story. So Mary Decker actually, having accused her really badly of, uh, you know, really publicly of having tripped her up, later admitted it was actually her fault. She wasn't really used to running in groups and she sort of got a bit too close to her and tripped over. There's a documentary from about four years ago called The Fall, which is the two of them, the story and them getting reunited and sort of making their peace with each other. Apparently Mary Decker had written to Zola Bud to apologise to her for her right. role in what she, uh, what she experienced. And also, um, the um that there's more about how zola bud's dad uh, hadn't really acted in her interest she was dropped into this situation she didn't really she was really young 
she didn't have it much say in in um the fact that she was brought over to Britain and put in that spotlight was yeah. on the front page of the Daily Mail all the time. She didn't speak out against um, apartheid or anything like that, and that made it even worse. The fact that she she'd come over, naturalised, jumped, jumped, you know, become become a Brit, and didn't didn't then criticise what was happening over there. She has since criticised it. So there's all these things uh, happening, but so much more to the story. Uh, but yeah, in terms of being massively hyped, which the Daily Mail did hugely, and then failing in the most public and spectacular way possible. I think, yeah, Zola Bird was one of the first people that came to mind in terms of being a, a flop at that level. It's quite interesting. Uh, so, so I've got, I got my Marys mixed up. So Mary Peters is the Northern Irish one that she was a little bit ah. before. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when... So Britain have a bit of a track record of British countries as well, British teams within Britain as well, because I mentioned Scotland rugby earlier, bringing players in from other countries because they've got, a lot of them have grandparents who would have moved away and moved there in the past. Um, while I was doing my extensive Maharam Prakash research, the name Graham Hick came up quite a bit. So Graham Hick also 100 first class hundreds. So Hick and Ramprakash are the last two to get 100 first class hundreds and it's probably never going to be done again and um yeah and people I think I think Graham Hick got a pretty rough ride for the fact that he wasn't really British he, he qualified through residency and was Zimbabwean and yeah then although with him he did didn't he yeah I, he was another person I thought I was wondering if you were going to mention so <laughs> go, yeah go, I mean, very but similar record to Ramps really similar number of tests yeah. similar number of so the but the, the funny thing was, I think there's some fact like the, the two, so the, before Hick and Ramprakash, the two people to get 100 hundreds were, the, the last two were Viv Richards and um, Jeff Boycott, I think. Oh, wow. And there's okay. a test match where they all played. Um, so, really? Yeah. So the, oh, sorry. Um, I think that's right. Um but yeah, so Ramp Cash and Hick made their debut, certainly opposite Viv Richards in the same test. Um and yeah, and it and they were the last kind of three hundreds, mm. I think. That's interesting. So, Hick um Hick. Oh, sorry, it's Gooch, not not Boycott. So it's Viv Richards, Graham Gooch, Hick, oh, okay. Ramp Cash. So, and they all yeah. played in the same test. That's yeah. quite something. Hick's an interesting so the, I guess yeah, one of the differences with Hick is he he wasn't fast tracked, so he had a few years to to to, to, yeah, to yeah. To naturalize, but that also built up the hype. So I'll just yeah, you know, yeah. the counting down seven to years, it. <laughs> seven. So, I yeah. thought it was about four years. It, yeah, well, and then it, they've just recently changed it from three to five because they didn't feel three was long enough. But yeah, seven. Right. Yeah. God, I didn't realize it was that long. But but yeah, and in all that time, it's like he's soon. You know, he's going to be. He's going to be the savior. He's going to come in and yeah. and then to be that bad. You know, that average. I should say. Yeah. Was yeah. What a massive disappointment. Yeah. yeah, so Hick averaged 31 to Rampakash's 27, but yeah, he, That's disappointing all, all, all round, really. Um, mm. But it does, it happens um, in rugby quite a lot, is that I think you need to be, you'd, you'd be cutting it, you'd be fine and everyone would like you if you were a proper Scot, Scottish Scot. Whereas yeah. if you're imported from South Africa, you've got to be a bit, a bit above... Um, and then all of a sudden, if you're successful, everyone forgets it overnight. So, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's still the same, I think. Um, mm. But 
Well, my my next one is is um, it's a I'd say this is a sort of this is a flop and a disappointment, but it's also bizarre to think back that this actually happened. And okay. think to the thought process leading up to what led England to do this is just absolute madness. Okay. Um, so the 2015 Rugby World Cup held in England. Um, so it's England have got their main group games at Twickenham. It's a really good chance to, to, to go deep in the World Cup after quite a disappointing 2011 World Cup. Stuart Lancaster was brought in, sort of reinvented the team, sort of, a, he was a really nice guy and a really well thought of coach, but quite low profile for an England head coach. And they'd had a pretty good sort of four year cycle um, up to, to the World Cup. Um, and England have got loads of resources, they're going to be getting loads of money for this World Cup, and they've got loads of players to pick from. Um, so what, what could possibly go wrong? And then sort of out of nowhere, Sam Burgess gets gets called up. So Sam Burgess was a mm-hmm. sort of uh, world-class rugby league player, arguably the best player in the world at the time. Um, and for some reason, England just decided that, that he was going to be uh, the, the answer to winning the World Cup. And possibly because Sonny Bill Williams had done something similar for New Zealand. But... I think he'd always been a sort of twin code player and Burgess had never played rugby union and leading up to the tournament, there was, there was debate about whether he was a center or whether he was a flanker and they couldn't really make their mind up. Bath played him mostly as a flanker and England called him up to the side as a, as a center. And he started one of the key games. Um, I think it was the Wales game, um, which England needed to win and lost amusingly. Um, and having led with the sort of the advertising hype, which was uh, we always pull through at home. I think it was they lost at home to to Wales and Australia. Admittedly, a tough group, but um, yeah. and were out of the World Cup before they'd even played their final group game. Um, mm. So, and the whole Sam Burgess fiasco was. I don't think he played. He, he then came out to criticise the setup, and he didn't really know what, he, what the plan was. He never played for England again. I think he must have cost the RFU an awful lot of money. Mm. I mean, Bath paid him notionally, but I suspect that there was it was the RFU made that call. The RFU, who are always losing money, despite the fact they have much more income than any other union, and. Um, and he ended up going back to rugby league and playing in the the next rugby league world cup and it was just an absolute farce really and it just sort of summed yeah. up that it was and it's something something that's happened to england cricket before they sort of spend the whole year a whole four-year cycle planning for for a world cup and then they'll change something quite soon before um yeah and suddenly it's just like well a lot of that time that you've spent preparing is lost and um i was worried that joffrey archer might be might be something that that would happen mm. to england in a similar way um and there were certainly people in that around that world cup squad who would have been pretty aggrieved at me missing out to joffrey but if you win the world cup it doesn't matter in the end does it yeah 
<laughs> and he played quite a key role. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we we've talked about that 2015 World Cup a couple of times, mm. haven't we? Because it was it was just such a great time to be in Britain and and around London because there's loads of games on and yeah, superb. And I I went around the country and and saw games in Leeds and Newcastle and and yeah, it was. Um, but that whole fiasco just seems like kind of a bad dream. <laughs> a total fiasco, exactly. And just hearing you describe it again just brings back how what were they thinking what what on earth are you thinking it just it it just and they are a few you know it's not the first time they've just made just bad decision making and as you've said throwing away planning or just even it doesn't give you any confidence that they actually know what they're doing at, at that no. sort of level and it and just it... backfired spectacularly i've tried to find it wasn't the only reason but it's still no. but i mean but just yeah it shouldn't have happened it was one of those i've looked back to try and think of what the logic was in terms of so you know the 1997 lions tour living with the lions um hmm. so that test team the british lions test team was quite a weird team because a lot of the people in it didn't play either didn't play for their countries or didn't play for countries in those positions but what they'd done is they'd picked loads of guys who had just come back from rugby league because rugby union had gone professional and um, they, but they'd been professionals for years because they'd been playing rugby league. So they were in better nick. Their defending was better, which was the kind of key to, to facing the All Blacks. And it's, it's almost like they, they tried, someone had watched that documentary and thought, I know this is what we need to do. Despite the fact they had loads of other centers who'd been rugby union players their their whole lives and and Burgess something he got like a season of of build up mm. and it just seemed absolute absolute madness yeah um and mm. I, and I know for that tournament Scotland had there was definitely a couple of South Africans who qualified like weeks before the tournaments they'd never played for South Africa before and we kind of parachuted them in but mm. they were in kind of positions where we were quite weak and they're still rugby players. They're still professional rugby union players <laughs> yeah. who are good enough to play for us, which I'm not sure is the case with Sam Burgess. So, yeah, madness. Absolute madness. That's another good one. Um, but we've got really, really strong contenders here. I've got one more, which I don't think is going to make it on, but I'm going to mention it anyway, um, which is, and, and this person was such a flop um that i couldn't even remember their name and i refused to look it up <laughs> until i remembered the person's name which happened um yesterday but i remembered that the name uh, that i was looking for was audley harrison the boxer a force um yeah <laughs> yes what a rubbish nickname that is um so he he wins the uh super heavyweight i think it was gold uh at the 2000 olympics i think yeah. it is um and um, I remember the press conference they did. We we won loads of goals, and he was gold in that in that Olympics. And he was one of the main voices in the press conference afterwards, talking about this is us on the rise. You know, Britain, British sport um, becomes a bit of a big, uh, a, a minor celebrity of the time, and signed this million pound contract with the BBC for his first ten professional fights. Um, ends up fighting a bunch of handpicked journeymen and. Um, beating some of them with either one punch or just really easy in the first round. These were just like real like, cloggers, people, you know, that yeah. were just lined up for him to knock them out. And this sort of carries on. And the second he steps up 
in, in quality, you start struggling against them. Um, BBC, I saw, looking at this, I saw some article um, where the BBC were in crisis talks with him after about his seventh or eighth uh, fight because it was just so embarrassing for them. They spent a lot of money mm. um, and he, uh, yeah, he just wasn't delivering. In the end, as he steps up in class, I just remember him getting knocked out by absolute no-hopers a couple of times, just completely flawed and ab absolutely embarrassingly bad um, a boxer at professional level. So, so bad. Uh, I seem to recall he wasn't that, he was quite old at the Olympics as well, because they tend to be Olympic boxers are either really young or hmm. Cuban. Because you can't go pro. <laughs> yeah, because they just go pro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, so, yeah, he was in um, his thirties, I think. And yeah, just he sort of. I mean, super heavyweight. The line between super heavyweight and an heavyweight, actually, the line between specimen and fat is quite blurred in boxing. I would say because you look at Tyson <laughs> yes. Fury, like he's massive, but you, if you saw him with a shirt off on the beach, you wouldn't think that's a professional hmm. sport you know that's a professional athlete no. there uh whereas you look at anthony joshua and because mm -hmm. he's had a couple of he's built up quite slowly i think he was he was younger when he started when we sort of yeah but he's he's fought guys who look like they are just in a pub looking for a fight yeah one of them beat him <laughs> yeah and and you just look at them and think this guy is gonna kill you he looks like you know the sort of London equivalent of Ivan Drago. He's like a perfect yeah. specimen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, the it, it, I mean, the doctors must just be thinking, bloody hell, we're going to have to be on our toes here. Because if he hits him two or three times, <laughs> we need to be in before he yeah. hit the floor. But yeah, I'd forgotten about Audley Harris. <laughs> so I think it's a yeah. really good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <sighs> so yeah, so, I, yes. I you, want. Did you have any more? Yeah, I've got a couple. So. Um, okay. They're, own, they're, they're a bit more, uh, they are niche because one of these people is definitely delivered. So uh, I always liked how you could rely on Tiger Woods to be really rubbish in the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was always just not a disappointment because we were supporting the opposition, but he was just yeah. really didn't so do the task. But I think that was sort of, he was really single-minded about success and he just didn't mm. see the point in team. It was in the pairs in particular, he was really bad, wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. they used to put him with Mickelson and they didn't yeah. get on at the time and I think he has actually got better so I, I think it was stretching the definition a bit to say he's a he's a flop in the Ryder Cup because his records probably improved much much more towards mm. the end but um but I I just I thought we should mention um Chelsea because they were the first team to just go out and buy the league really I mean mm. you could argue Blackburn did it but um they were buying up players who they blatantly didn't need. Yeah. Other team that just to make other teams weaker. So people like Scott Parker and Sean Wright Phillips, who just went to Chelsea to Steve Sidwell as well. Just went Sidwell. to Chelsea. Yeah. Who and then they were like their main team players. And it was almost like risk kind of, well, I don't need Papua New Guinea, but they might want it to have it. And um, <laughs> so, and the flop of all flops and it's a hot field who's the worst Chelsea buy. Okay, let's ever. see if I agree with this one. Uh, it's got a nice link to another thing we've discussed in the pod, which I liked, which was uh, the absence of um, 
unknown teams in the later stages of the Champions League. So I yeah. always really liked when Dynamo Kiev did well and they had Rebrov mm-hmm. and they had Shevchenko and I couldn't name mm-hmm. anyone else in their team, but those two were brilliant. And Shevchenko went to Milan and he was brilliant there and he won the Champions League there and he turned up to Chelsea and he was hopeless. Yeah. And it was an owner signing their favourite player. So. Mm-hmm. An yeah. absolute disaster. I remember um, when they signed him for 30 million and I was speaking to a friend of mine, Alan, in fact, who uh, who emailed us in uh, the last show. And he was saying that's just a ridiculous amount of money. And I remember saying to him, but they've got the money and yeah. he can't fail. He's obviously going to be brilliant. So, it, you know, it's it's good. And he was saying, no, it's just not. I was like, what are you talking about? He's going to be brilliant. One of the worst signings of all yeah. time. Just just even if he'd cost five million, <laughs> it was that bad. So the, the other mm. contenders, because I said it was a hotly contested field, that one. Mm. Um, and it, it's hard to call him a flop because he, he won the Champions League. And, you know, if you're playing all due respect to the Ukraine national team, that is the biggest trophy you're going to win you know because you're not going to win the world cup um Mm -hmm. would be torres um because he was 50 million but he did still get them to the champions league final when they had that one-on-one and he put it away yeah and um you know so relatively speaking a flop but he he still got he still got them there. Whereas Shevchenko, I don't remember him doing anything at all at Chelsea. And he's no. so good from for everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Agree with everything you've just said. Yeah. And there are others as well at Chelsea, but yeah, those two stand out. Yeah. Mm. There was a lot of English players who found, who sort of went for the, the money and then I think would have regretted it. Eventually there was a lot yeah. uh, of people signed out of the Dutch league for big money. And then it was like, yeah. the Dutch league, it's, it's not as good as the Premier League. Kesman was one. Kesman. Kesman, yeah. Roos. I mean, there's just, yeah, you can go on, can't you? Oh, my God. You um, could make an 11. That, you could do a, a gold, silver, bronze, Dean Macy from that alone. Yeah, quite <laughs> easily. And the, the, the thing was, the best players they signed were actually, a lot of them, sort of, either they were already like Lampard. They didn't pay mega money for Lampard from West Ham. Damien mm. Duff wasn't mega money. Uh, yeah. Czech wasn't that much money. And yeah. which just goes to show that the, the signings were um, the ones that were researched a bit better. Actually, the big money ones didn't didn't mm-hmm. ever turn out that well. Yeah. So. So. Right. right. That, well, that is a hell of a list. I think this is the most difficult one we've ever had because um, there were so many. All of them in in different ways could could easily get on the podium. Right. So, what are your Thoughts. I'm trying to think of a, the Dean Macy's normally a bit left field, isn't it? And I'm not sure there's been yeah kind of more well, left field one. I... Graham Taylor's a manager. Yeah. So we could stick him there because uh, he'd yeah, manage he'd the failed. biggest disappointment eleven, wouldn't he? There you go. So there he go. He goes. He goes into the Dean Macy spot, maybe. Yeah. Um, now, Rampra Cash was also on my list, my, okay. my, my long list. Um, and yeah, just in terms of uh, the stats, I can't, I, I'm, I can't believe how good the case is even stronger in my mind now because of how good he was when yeah. he wasn't playing for England. That's astonishingly good. 
the gap is massive. So yeah, I think I think he he gets on the podium. I, I would I would say Sam Burgess, whilst a massive flop, we did say flops mm. stroke disappointment. You could kind of see the disaster coming, whereas there's yeah, others you that's true. just thought. So maybe that knocks him out of contention in a in a yeah where when the bar's quite high. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I feel like just the Zola Bud. I mean, it's just the definition of a flop, really. Yeah. Massive hype and build up, and then just a total disaster, uh, and then disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we go? So we go. Ramprakash, Bud, Harrison. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and Taylor. Um, presiding over the whole fiasco. Yeah, 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 <laughs> okay. absolutely. Getting everyone to, to to knock it along. Yeah, fine. That is that strong. Yeah, it's that a strong is really strong. Yeah. So, um, so I think um, next next time we're doing um, we're doing individual rivalries, aren't we? We are. Yes. So, so yeah, we are. Part two of our uh, uh, yeah, we did teams uh, last time. So yes. So that is any. Um, uh, we want people to get in touch as well because uh, if people can send in theirs, then we'll inc well we'll add those to the conversation. So yep. we're looking for individual head-to-head uh, -head sporting rivalries and duels. So it can be a specific occasion where there was a head-to-head, -head, or it can be like a career-long head-to-head, or it can be like yeah, a series of whatever it was contests. And so it's, it that's be, what we're looking for. It can be in team sport, presumably doesn't have to be individual yeah. anymore, but it's just yeah, it's yeah. about the individuals rather than the team the individuals yes the people um and that, yeah that's what we're looking for so frankly who cares pod at gmail.com to send in yours i think that's going to be a good one as well yeah uh, for us to come back to so that's it for another yes. edition so until next time goodbye cheers